We live in a world ever more saturated with images as their subjects become increasingly self-aware and the scale of the world's dramatic crises harder to capture. Even photojournalists are struggling to cut through the pictorial noise of our visual culture. The ubiquity of smartphones and the affordability of photographic equipment may mean we're awash with snaps, but audiences have also become more visually literate than ever before. I'm Augusta Machelari, and for this special edition of the Monocle Weekly, I spoke to Richard Moss, an award-winning artist whose work pushes the boundaries of what's possible in documentary photography. Recipient of the Deutsche Börse Photography Prize and winner of the Prix Pite Global Award in Photography and Sustainability, Richard Moss broke into the public eye a decade ago with his remarkable project on conflict in the Congo called Infra. Using a discontinued reconnaissance infrared film used by the military to reveal combatants camouflaged in vegetation, he shone a new psychedelic light on the overlooked conflict. He continued his exploration of invisible light frequencies and military hardware in 2017's Incoming. Using a military-grade thermal imaging camera capable of detailed battlefield surveillance, he followed the impossible journey of refugees as they fled conflict in search of safety in Europe. For the past year, Richard has turned to the Amazon to document the effects of the environmental degradation wrought by industrialised farming and forest clearance. As 2020 drew to a close, I caught up with Richard for an exclusive interview to learn more about his latest project and his relationship with the boundary-pushing media that had become his trademark. I began by asking what he travelled to the Amazon to capture. Last summer, you may remember, there was an extensive media blitz coverage of of the burning rainforest. And so I I wanted, I thought, I really wanted to see this for myself and try and unpack it for myself. And as an artist, I suppose my work, my practices is a hybrid of sorts. It's in the interstices between contemporary art and reportage photography, documentary photography. And I also make video art installations. And as an artist, I was very intrigued by the challenge of representing climate change and environmental catastrophe because it's just so bloody difficult. It's just often very, very outside of the limits of I suppose, the quantitative limits of human perception and therefore language. It's way bigger than us. And for this reason, it's particularly difficult to photograph or to depict and represent. And so I've always, as an artist, I've always been very fascinated by the limits of failure of representation, and especially in relation to documentary photography. Documentary photography is a very concrete medium. It's a very, you need to put the thing in front of the lens, which is a real challenge. You have to be present in the space with the thing. And when the thing is an abstraction far bigger than, you know, human figure and human perception, it's very difficult to to do so adequately. And so that was really the start of, of this project. Doing that failure to do so, as you put it, to, to capture the kind of enormity of this thing, do you think that kind of plays into the the challenges of of really affecting any change around it. Does negotiating the challenges of documenting it visually, do you think that's a route into communicating what it means, the urgency of it effectively? Yeah, I feel there's a, there's a media saturation. As a, I suppose as soon as you begin to try to figure out where to start effectively telling the story, you realise it's, it's really hard to do. I think once sort of identifying the, those limits of articulation are, is, is, a, is a good place to start. 
So I became very interested in simply trying to visually express that, those limits and that particular failure. And I've been staring at the bottom of my freezer at these packets of long discontinued black and white infrared called Kodak HIE or high-speed infrared film. Black and white, and I think it was discontinued in the year 2000 or earlier, 1998. And it's, it's, a, it's a devil to use because it's so heat sensitive anywhere you take it extremely sensitive emulsion very easy to, to screw up especially sensitive to humidity and to heat degradation so <laughs> naturally I, I began thinking well maybe this is the way to to describe that failure and so I, I went around sites of well the burning rainforest trying to document places that were burning or recently burned all across the arc fire, as it's called, in northern Brazil, from Rondonia to southern Amazonas, across to Pará states. And the interesting thing is that the film is also unable to, or it doesn't see smoke when you filter out the visible spectrum. Which, <laughs> And most of these fires are, of course, very far away and very some of them very large. And usually it's hard, just hard enough to actually capture pictures of the flames, so you you tend to depict them through smoke. And so that didn't even show up on the negs. But the negs also revealed this palimpsest of a sort of mottled, tactile, almost painterly canvas of, of its own degradation. <laughs> so the, this extraordinary antique film was, was really failing in a beautiful way. <laughs> and I became fascinated because all of my actual fingerprints were evident on the negatives. And there were tears and tears and scratches and and here I was describing global heating itself and aspects of the burning rainforest getting quite close in some instances so to me that was very visually expressive of of my subject it was really pointing foregrounding those limits at least my <laughs> my own inability to depict it otherwise and to point to the failure itself and I guess at that point it was a you know I realized I'd okay I had identified the limits but maybe there's a way to push beyond this. And I was thinking a lot, you know, I was a little unsatisfied, although I found those visually expressive, large format black and white infrared landscapes of expressing this, this heat degradation very effective. I also wanted to push further, find something perhaps more futuristic or looking into the future of the medium of photography. So I thought rather broadly about the subject and I began to be very interested in the kinds of cameras used in satellites, environmental monitoring satellites. And I re discovered, reading around the subject, that they use quite advanced cameras, obviously, that are what's known as multispectral cameras. So they, they capture, they move across the surface of the Earth at high speed, capturing images of the surface of the, of the land, of the topology, across a number of bandwidths. So we, our eyes, we see... We could imagine we see in the visible spectrum three bands, red, green, and blue. And all the colors that emerge between red, green, and blue, the colors of the rainbow, those are the colors we can see. And everything outside of that actually holds a huge amount of data, information that can be used by these scientists, teams of scientists, trying to understand the scale of the deforestation and the, and the destruction of the Amazon, as well as to use it predictively to build models, to understand not just the release of carbon dioxide, but many other things, including in what ways the water is being polluted and the release of other aspects of this destruction is all imaged across various 
bandwidths of spectral data in not only the visible spectrum, but also in the invisible infrared and sometimes in the ultraviolet spectra as well. And so these are captured simultaneously by the satellite cameras. That Sometimes it's 10 or 11 or 12 bandwidths that they're capturing. And then this is beamed back to Earth and the scientists can then dial the, that data into GIS software to try to extrapolate information about what's really happening on the ground. That's how they're able to determine uh, what's going on in such a vast scale um, across the Amazon. And so that, that really got me thinking. I was like, started to really look through some of the images and read about, read around the subject. And I found actually that the, some of these maps that they were producing as a byproduct were actually very aesthetically powerful, a very interesting color palette. And then reading around it a bit more, I found that there is a very fascinating tension within the medium, the multispectral medium. Um, not only is it used by the good guys, the scientists, the teams of scientists working for, for example, Map Biomass or Amazon. And these are teams of environmental monitoring scientists who, who are based in Brazil, who are specifically checking what's happening in the Amazon. These cameras are also, this camera technology is also being harnessed by the bad guys who are carrying out the deforestation, namely agribusiness. So actually, it's not just agribusiness, not just agri big farmers, ranchers. It's also mineralogists who are surveying all across the Amazon to try to determine where the rare earth minerals are for extraction. So that's very interesting. You have this inherent tension that the medium itself is sort of at the crux of perhaps you could say it's at the crux of the, of the entire narrative because it's being used and harnessed in order to save the rainforest, but it's also somehow has, has some agency in its destruction. Just to tell you, really the deforestation in, in the Amazon is extremely different to what we're seeing in, for example, California or the fires in Siberia. And that's because it's really extremely willful what's going on in the Amazon. It's being carried out. The burning is happening on the ground. I've, I've seen it. I've driven for, I think, about 20,000 kilometers in the last year, year and a half, all across the Amazon. And everywhere I go, the scale of the burning is just, it's just, it's, it's hard to articulate, to, t to relate that to you. Um, there's so much burning going on. Um, and 80% of, of, of the deforestation is, it's, it's thought, uh, is, is the result of cattle ranching. And there's an estimated 50,000 head of cattle in the Amazon. And they all need something to eat. Um, it just so happens that the most profitable form of fodder is uh, soybean. So there's huge tracts of land are also being cleared for these vast soybean fields um, without hedgerows, where there's very little places for anything except cattle and soybeans to, to live. So, yes, it's a... It's a really difficult thing to, to take a photograph of, especially because it's a process that unfolds over a number of years, usually about three years. That first of all, the, the more valuable timber is identified, marked, labelled, and then felled, and then moved, moved out. And then the resulting forest is then prepared for being burned, and they wait until the dry season, obviously. And because of climate change, the dry seasons are getting longer and longer, allowing for more and more burning. Um, and then the next year again, they'll, they'll burn again, and then they'll lay fences. And then the year again after that, they'll burn again. And eventually, at a certain point after probably the second year, they introduce cattle onto the land, which actually helped to create pasture land with their hooves, their heavy animals. Um, and that process is really hard to, I suppose, to document because it's so slow. <laughs> 
So I've been returning to these sites over and over and documenting some of the exact same waypoints uh, along the arc of fire. And I hope to build a kind of archive showing the process of, of the deforestation. When you're talking about that, you kind of describe the topography and the challenges of capturing that, that kind of durational process of destruction. But you also, in this photo series, I think have been shooting people involved, both affected by uh, the fires and participating in the burning and the work that that kind of makes space for, I suppose. And I wondered what your reception was from these people, you know, when you were there. And especially your reception, not necessarily as a journalist, maybe the the sort of external interest they might be used to seeing, but as someone who was there to make artworks out of this. Primarily I've been focusing on the agents of deforestation, the the people carrying it out. Uh, And that's a lot to do with the pandemic, actually, because the, the indigenous communities whose land is often being burned, actually, they're ex- extremely vulnerable to respiratory diseases genetically. So it's irresponsible to go into their communities at present. So I've been avoiding that part of the story. Hopefully, if the vaccine comes, I can begin to work more in, in their areas um, and try to understand their, their narratives. But mainly, I've been, I've been trying to track down and essentially immerse myself, infiltrate <laughs> groups or individuals who, who are carrying out this uh, burning and branching and uh, it's very interesting. So the, about 95% of my job is getting access and, and about 4% is other stuff, <laughs> administration. And then there's only 1% is actually making the art. But access are, is a really tough game because you, you really have to figure out the key for every specific scenario and each individual will be different. But in Brazil, I'm finding, particularly with, for example, illegal gold miners, these are very dangerous towns. This is, you know, there's a lot of criminality here very little police presence. Uh, police who are there tend to be quite corrupt. What I figured out is actually certainly, you know, running in with a telezoom lens and, and, and stealing the shot and running out, you'll probably get murdered quite quickly. Some, a lot of these guys are armed. Uh, they have no interest in, in that kind of uh, journalism going on, on on their turf. They're very macho guys <laughs> and extremely proud of what they've achieved in life. Very you know, if you can engage with that, that machismo, that pride, and show them some respect, um, they can't say no, seemingly. I found the key was actually was to go to them, obviously don't get any cameras out at that point, and, and to listen to them, talk to them, show great admiration. And then in front of their workers, they have these teams of young men who work like dogs in these pits, incredibly hot, incredibly loud, really hostile places. And they're essentially, you know, blasting the land with these high-powered water jets and, and they have these ships that devastate the riverbanks and, and scrape up the, the riverbeds and process this silt with mercury, which gets, a lot of which gets dumped back into the river system. It's a really intense process. But if you can appeal to the, the head guy's sense of machismo and then ask him in front of his employees, uh, can we document this amazing process? He can't say no because he's very proud of, of what he's up to. And so, of course, then you're blessed with permission um, to document freely. And, of course, once you do that, you start to hang out with these guys and you realize these are some of them amazing guys, very powerful characters. Um, you start to enjoy the company of some of them and actually befriend them. <laughs> and then you realize these guys are, are humans just like yourself, obviously. They're not just environmental criminals, although they very much are. 
a lot of them really don't have much choice in the matter. For example, the guys living on these massive cattle ranches, they live in this weird state of, I suppose, they're almost bonded to the land, to these huge ranches. The, they don't get the profit. Some guy, some family, wealthy family living in Sao Paulo gets the profit. Now, these guys have been given a, a free piece of that land to live on and, and a very small salary. And they're the cowboys and they go around with 10-gallon hats on, on horses, very much like a Wild West film, actually, which is very interesting. Uh, as an artist, you can engage with that iconography uh, in telling the story. Obviously, a sort of Ballardian version of the Western because, <laughs> because you're, you're seeing these guys you know, wandering through on horseback through burned rainforest rather than the dusty canyons of the, of the West. I've made friends with a lovely family in Rondonia who, who really, really like. And I've been going back to them. And uh, one day they even, the guy knew I was coming the next day. So he stayed up past midnight with his rifle and he shot a paca, which is a very large hamster. And uh, they, his wife cooked it up. And by God, that was the best meal I've had in a long time. Really good. Uh, and he goes everywhere with his rifle because once he was on his ranch and uh, Jaguar hopped out and attempted to charge him and he didn't know what to do. And he basically faced off with the Jaguar for about five minutes until his bud happened to be driving by and she got scared. So he's uh, a little bit traumatized. Fascinating characters. They're locked into a global economy of really most of the sort of blame complicity should be directed at ourselves and the consumers of these beef burgers from Burger King, for example, it's massive corporations like JPS buying huge amounts of cows that can't be really accounted for from land that's just been burned out of, out of the rainforest, processing them in these massive factories that they built in these towns, agribusiness towns, and turned into sort of raw materials for beef burgers for these enormous chains uh, for fast food. Yeah, so it's hard when you understand the full scale of that economy. It's hard to really blame my friend, that guy whose wife cooked that wonderful paca meat for us. They really understand that land and, and live on it. All I'm trying to say is that there's, there's a lot of ambiguity here and it's not so easy as pointing fingers. Well, this is it. I mean, it's fascinating to hear you talk about that because I guess it's, it's an issue that extends, as you say, from the kind of personal, from the consumer in the West to these individuals who are working on this kind of strange new Ballardian frontier uh, in this incredibly, I mean, you painted a really apocalyptic picture there, and I'm sure it's warranted. And then there's geopolitics as well, because we think of Bolsonaro as the kind of godfather of deforestation in 20, well, in the 2010s, 2020. But then there's also this link to the Sino-American trade war, where Brazil has suddenly become the major exporter of soybeans to China as a consequence of that. There are all these currents, and I guess that's something that you also maybe want to work to encode in your images. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's fascinating how perfect a storm it is, actually, for all these reasons, Bolsonaro being the leader. In 2018, he passed a bill basically opening up the indigenous reserves to surveying by massive mining companies. And they're doing that surveying, obviously, through multispectral camera technologies to try to pinpoint those places. And they've, they've basically divvied up. They've already made plans for which massive mining company gets which indigenous reserve, which, of course, is private property, is the property of the community. And, yeah, as you were saying, the soybean trade is really extraordinary to see the scale of it. It's just endless highways full of massive trucks, like back-to-back, -back, trying to get to these ports on the Amazon. And ports are loaded up with soybeans and sent off through the Panama Canal over to China. So 
I was reading that Naomi Klein book, uh, This Changes Everything, and she was explaining that actually it's hard to believe, but agribusiness, industrialized agriculture, is responsible for 25% of all climate change. And that's not just all the massive engines on those ships that are creating the pollution. Of course, it's part of it, but it's also uh, how it's affecting the biodiversity and the, the farming practices to totally uh, scorched earth compared to traditional farming. Obviously, across, well, certainly over these three major projects of the last sort of 10 10 or 12 years that you've been working on uh, with Infra in the Congo and then incoming uh, tracking the refugee crisis in Europe. You've explored these different technologies. You've found different ways, as you've described, of encoding huge, huge amounts of contextual information into images, going beyond, I guess, the parameters of what might be accomplished uh, with more conventional sort of photographic methods. How did you arrive at that intersection of medium and message? 2009, I went to Iraq and I made a, a series of images, essentially an architectural project, photographic project, documenting the US forces who were based in the Saddam Hussein's palace architecture. And Saddam Hussein had about 84 palaces all around Iraq, many of which he'd never even visited. And when the US military arrived, they were so strategically well located, for obvious reasons, and very defensively built. They made pretty great forward operating bases. So they were occupied by the US military, which I found fascinating, just the layers of power and the expression of that architecturally from the sort of provisional corporate office partitions and cubicles that the US army would hastily set up within the very pompous and often poorly built authoritarian architecture of, of Saddam Hussein, which had a very specific style with some very strange, eccentric ornamental features such as giant teapots. And yeah, it was, it was very uh, incongruous stuff. And I, I, uh, I brought an 8 by 10 inch camera there and I, I really liked that project. And uh, after that, I realized I was frustrated with the medium of documentary photography. It's, it's really so... It's so conservative as a language, so reductive. It's very hard to get too far beyond. The codes are very limiting, often for good reasons, but often not. Often you're just an illustrator for a writer's text if you're doing editorial work, which is primarily what documentary photographers do. So yeah, I, was just, I wanted to break it apart, actually. I wanted to somehow really smash it. Just for myself, it was a very personal desire to essentially... <laughs> it was an expression of frustration with my own practice. And it was at that time that Kodak was on its path to bankruptcy, was announced, had announced the discontinuation of this infrared film, Kodak Aerochrome, 2010, I think 2009, around that time. I thought, well, this is a wonderful way to unpack a documentary subject. I don't know what that may be quite yet, <laughs> but I gathered as much of it as I could off eBay and wherever because it was, it was being made extinct. And then I sort of worked backwards from the medium which I always tend to do, actually, to find an effective subject or a subject that could be more adequately conveyed, to be sort of elevated through the medium, through this particular medium. Um, and that really was a starting point for me. Over the last 10 years, I've been working with, I suppose you call them, infrared film technologies, very interested in the unseen and sort of registering invisible light forms as a way, often metaphorically, of telling very complex documentary narratives in a more powerful way, and to refresh very saturated subject matter. For example, the refugee crisis unfolding across 
Europe, the Middle East and North Africa, every bloody photographer was out there taking pictures and they all tended to look rather similar. After a certain point, the imagery just became inherently less compelling and less powerful as a language. So I wanted to refresh it in my own way and I found this bizarre military-grade thermographic camera that can image human body heat from 30 kilometres distance, day or night. It's classed as a weapon. It's designed for battlefield situational awareness and long-range insurgent detection, tracking and targeting, so it's actually part of a weapon system. It's also used for search and rescue, actually. It's a very sort of activated medium or prism, if you like, to think through the representation of the refugee crisis and also almost an aggravated one. It, it really confronts the viewer on some level with their own complicity, I believe. And that at least was my intention, is to really make people feel that. And I think as an artist, that's one of the only things you can do is to make people feel something. Uh, there's a lot of younger art artists out there, very, I suppose, they're looking for more from art. They want forms of activism within art. And it's all very well and good, but I think we mustn't forget the power of what that is to make, to make other people feel something so in a new way, to show them, and also in a reflexive way, to make them step back from themselves in the act of perceiving and unpack that for themselves. This is the potential of art. Um, so I was working um, you know, through metaphor and through aesthetics in this work, but with that work, with that refuge, my project Incoming, its title, and it was using this this weapons technology, this long-range border enforcement technology, the thermographic heat, heat detection camera, I realized I was also operating in certain moments on another level, beyond the metaphoric and beyond the aesthetic, and that was the forensic. You have to understand the camera sees indexically a heat register that you can calibrate it for, of about 40 degrees, and anything that's relatively cooler or relatively warmer within that given frame is depicted in black or white, depending on how you set the recording. And so something that's black hot could be everything that's warm, such as the human body, would be depicted in black, and everything that's cold would be surrounding that human body would be white, for example. Or if you set it the other way, white hot, it's the opposite. And I was filming this, one of the most tragic events I've ever witnessed, and probably ever will, hopefully. It was a, one of the biggest human trafficking disasters on the Aegean Sea in human memory. It was 300 people or more were on a, on a fishing trawler that was, they had paid to be on that boat from Turkey to Lesbos. And unfortunately, they, were, they packed that, those unscrupulous human traffickers had just packed that boat to too many people. It was only designed for perhaps 20 or 30 people. So the top deck of the boat collapsed and in the ensuing panic, the entire hull ripped apart and we were able to capture all this from about seven kilometers away with a camera designed exactly for this kind of thing. And then when the bodies were brought to shore to the harbor of Molivos, something extraordinary happened. It was after dark at this point. The rescue effort was badly botched because the boat sank in international waters. So a lot of the people on the first, on the first rescuers, I suppose you call them, were, were local fishermen rather than Turkish Coast Guard who couldn't legally get involved. Also some Frontex boat was trying to help, but it was badly designed for this kind of thing because it's designed for the monitoring of illegal immigration, all the wrong reasons for being there. In any case, the bodies eventually, and the victims of the catastrophe were eventually brought to shore and literally out on a cold stone pier, they were lined up on thermal blankets and Red Cross workers, volunteers, local doctors, anyone who could, could help out 
were frantically trying to revive these hypothermic victims, some of whom had passed out or had semi-drowned or some of whom had, had remained conscious but were literally freezing to death. And so they were literally, what they were doing was rubbing the life-giving warmth from their hands into the flesh, coddled flesh of, the, of these hypothermic victims in front of us on the pier, desperately trying to sort of transmit life-giving heat back, back into them. Now, a normal camera, of course, after dark, wouldn't be able to see very much, let alone would it be able to see the trace of that transmission of warmth, uh, which the thermal camera was able to do, an incredibly effective articulation of exactly the crux of, of the emergency unfolding around us. It was a sort of very powerful testimonial footage of the efforts to revive these people and the scale of the, the trauma around us. But what does that kind of, that having that seven mile distance, but the intimacy of this camera, I mean, what did that do for you as the kind of, the documentarian, as the artist present there, the witness to that? I mean, it, I guess is different to a war photographer who's kind of being shelled with the people that he or she's photographing. That well, must no, have been a strange dissonance. Well, no, so that's the specificity of this particular medium. It's a sort of scopic regime, if you will. It's a very super telescopic optical device. When the boat was sinking in, in the middle of the, the straits between Turkey and Greece, it's the ideal thing because you can actually see the human souls, their heat radiation emitted by their bodies in the cold water. You can pinpoint them there, those individuals, with this camera. But when we got to the port, we were able to be relatively close because it's a zoom lens. It doesn't go wide by any stretch, but we were actually able to, to get quite close to the emergency workers and, and the, the victims without intruding on them. And there were, there were photographers from agencies, who, whom I will not name, who were, were butting right up to these people in, in, in a very interruptive way to get their photograph, which we didn't need to do because we could stand back and, and not um, get in the way. We could still tell the story and I believe, a more effective way. But just to go back to this notion of the indexical and the forensic. So remember, I've been working through metaphor and aesthetics. And in this case, I was suddenly seeing an indexical measurement of, of the narrative that these individuals were, were suffering, which was hypothermia after almost drowning because of the specific immigration policies of Europe, we were able to, to show their pallid skin, which in this case, it was a black hot image. So they were, the ones who were hypothermic were, were going sort of pallid white because they were so cold. Their bodies looked radically different to the bodies of the you know, healthy emergency workers who, whose handprints were rubbing that heat into their bodies. And we could see the, the heat traces after they moved the hand that image of the hand, the, the thermal image of the hand, remained for a number of seconds on the surface of the, of the skin. This was re really powerful to me, and I'd never seen it, and I, it really affected me, and I began to start thinking about the documentary image in a different way, because that's what the documentary image is all about. It's essentially trying to capture a trace of, of a historically significant event, which was brought into crisis with the advent of digital cameras, of course. Since then, you know, obviously I've been looking very carefully at forensic architecture's work and, and how they work. And I've even been in dialogue with them and helped them. I submitted that material to them and they put together their own piece. I'm sure many people listening have heard of forensic architecture. They're a group, a collective of research architects, designers, graphic designers, photographers, filmmakers, editors, 
CGI experts and theorists, a very effective group of people who put together these case studies of, I suppose, crimes, uh, human rights violations, in order to, to try to bring about a kind of accountability. Now, moving into my next project in the Amazon, I'm, I was trying to find that indexical, the, the, the forensic traces in what I was doing, to try to work in the same way all over again. I believe, and this is really one of the main reasons why I sort of jumped to discover or to embrace multispectral camera technologies, is because they're used by scientists to detect environmental change. And they can image that, this, the extent of that, through this camera technology. So I realized that not only does it accidentally produce a very beautiful color palette, and does it work metaphorically in terms of it's somehow part of the narrative that I'm trying to, to depict, it also can be used in certain instances to show the scale upon the landscape or the topology or the lived environment or, or the natural environment of man's um, destructive traces and pollution, etc. I'm beginning a residency with CERN, and we've invited um, another scientific research organization in Brazil called Serra Pilheira. And they're a bit like CERN, but in Brazil. And this is a residency I'm doing as an artist uh, amongst these scientists. And so I'm, I'm able to communicate, go to them and start to use their network of experts and, and their, their extraordinary level of experience and understanding of very obscure scientific phenomena. And to, to help use that information to dial in this forensic data that I've, I am capturing with, with the multispectral camera and to use that to reveal these traces, to show them to the viewer through the reassignment of color of red, green, and blue. And hopefully that will be a more impactive and hopefully more meaningful way of, of telling the story beyond another photograph of the rainforest on fire. Many thanks to Richard Moss. These Amazon photographs we've just heard all about will be on view at Richard's upcoming solo show at Jack Shaneman Gallery in New York City from April the 8th to May the 15th. This interview was edited by Jack Dewars and Louis Allen. I've been Augustin Machilari. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>